Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. We all know someone who complains that they have killed every houseplant they've ever owned. Today, we talk with a houseplant professional who has a list of five nearly impossible to kill houseplants. We've talked in the past about the benefits of using chipped and shredded tree limbs as mulch. But are there any tree varieties that you should avoid? College horticulture professor Debbie Flower has the tips. And UC Davis Arboretum Superintendent Emeritus Warren Roberts has a sweet-smelling plant of the week, the gardenia. It's all on episode 135 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Hi, Fred. My name is Rex, and I have a question about one of your favorite things, mulch. I've read that certain types of mulch, like eucalyptus, releases toxins and will harm any plants grown in it. I've read similar things about sunflowers, that they're allelopathic, and growing them near vegetables can harm the veggies. The internet is full of all sorts of baseless claims and gardening myths, so it's been hard to find any concrete, science-based information on these topics. I've wanted to use an arborist to get free mulch, but if they're going to drop off eucalyptus, I'm not totally sure if it's a, a wise move or not. Is there any truth to these claims about toxicity? I hope you can help, and thanks so much for your show. Rex, thank you for the question, and thank you for using speakpipe.com, too. I just love the audio quality. You can send us that audio question without incurring any sort of data charges. Go to speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. It's easy. Give it a try, and you just might end up on the podcast, just like Rex. Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie, a lot of uh, myths surround, uh, I wish I could say allelopathic, uh, the allelopathic nature of, of certain plants like walnuts and eucalyptus. Right, right. It happens that when I got my master's degree, I went to the University of California at Davis, and they had finished a project about eucalyptus, and they had a eucalyptus forest when I first got there, and you could go and there would be nothing growing on the ground. And you could find the um, owl pellets. The owls like to be in the tall trees and they would eat the rodents. And then I guess they throw up they the throw up, yeah. bones and yes. skin and hair or whatever. And so that was all very interesting. Made great science projects with my kids at home. But then they decided they didn't need that forest anymore. And they took it down and mulched it and put that eucalyptus. It was pure eucalyptus mulch all over uh, campus. And nothing came up in it except eucalyptus. And so the, and other studies have been done by other people. This was not a controlled study at UC Davis, but it, I saw the, the results of that. That the eucalyptus, pure eucalyptus seems to have a pre-emergent effect, meaning that it kills things as they germinate out of the ground, except for other eucalyptus. And that actually for me would be a desirable effect in my ornamental garden for sure. If I were using it in my vegetable garden, I would then start all my plants in containers. Anything planted into the eucalyptus mulched soil did just fine. It was just that the s seeds underneath the eucalyptus mulch did not come up. So you could use that eucalyptus mulch right away after it was chipped and shredded around your existing plants. Yes, absolutely. All right. 
Would leaving that chipped eucalyptus in a pile for a certain length of time, a month or two months, help alleviate that situation? Probably. I don't have data to, to say for sure. Allelopathy, if that's what it is, and, and sometimes it's, it's not, but if it's allelopathy, it's due to chemicals that are in the uh, parts of the plant, and those chemicals will leach, wash out with water, or become uh, volatilized, which means they become a gas and are given off. And the decomposition will begin, and the things that can live in eucalyptus mulch will start to com- consume them. So over time, the effect of the chemicals in the eucalyptus will decline. Many things are declared allelopathic, as the caller uh, said, that are not. They are just excellent competitors. They take up all the nutrition and the uh, water that's available, or they carpet the ground themselves with enough of a mulch that other things don't germinate. Uh, I don't, I do get, as he suggested, I do get uh, chips from arborists and spread them around my landscape. And at first, for sure, I have no seeds coming up. And it's just because I've covered them and the seeds will germinate. Still, they're under the mulch. They germinate, but they don't have enough food to get up through the thick layer of mulch I put on the ground and grow. Over time, that stuff will break down, the eucalyptus included, and then the seeds can seed right into the mulch itself. But I would have no hesitation about using uh, eucalyptus mulch in my landscape. So, Rex, go ahead and mulch away. Yeah. Are there any trees that you'd be cautious about? If if an arborist offered you a load of certain trees, you'd be reluctant to put around existing plants? To put around existing plants, no. Okay. I would not. What about any sort of disease trees that were taken out? There's no evidence that, and there have been experiments done on this, there's no evidence that disease and insects survive the chipping process and the mulching process. Even something like verticillium wilt? Yes. Wow. Well, that's good news. Yeah. All right. And termites won't survive. No diseases. You know what will survive, though, if it's liquid amber are those seed balls. Yes. <laughs> See, I have a casuarina, a river she oak, that came up from my mulch mm-hmm. right in front of my house. So I dug it up and moved it. So you can get offspring. But I also have a lot of oaks on my property because the oaks on my property are producing acorns that, yeah. that are starting. So... I don't see using the mulch as causing any more problems than existing plants might in the seed department. And so basically then the drawback really for seeds that don't germinate is there's too much shade (laughs) for them. (laughs) They dry, they germinate, they come up because temperatures are right and moisture is right and they're looking for the sun. Looking is a, I know, an anthropomorphic term, but they are, seeds have food in them enough for the baby plant, which also exists in the seed, to grow to reach the sun. And if they don't reach the sun, they just die. And that's how mulch works to prevent seeds from growing. Well, since you brought that up, here's a scenic bypass. Yes. Aren't sunflower heads always looking for the sun? <laughs> yes, they, they are. They turn, and isn't there a name to that? They're phototropic. Phototropic, yes. Right, right. So they're looking for the sun. Yes, they uh, they respond to the sun. Houseplants respond to the sun. Plants planted like your abutilon here, close to the to the building, will reach out Toward the sun, and that is because the... You want to know why? Sure. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> There's a hormone, auxin, and it's produced primarily in in buds, in the growing tips, and it moves down the stem, and it controls, uh, among other things, it controls branching. 
but the auxin moves away from the sun and it causes cell elongation. So when the auxin moves from the sunny side of a stem to the shady side of the stem, the cells on the shady side get longer and that causes this stem to naturally curve toward the sun. All I'm thinking about is auxin. That's a great word for words with friends because it's spelled A-U-X-I-N. Yes, I've been playing Scrabble on my phone, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. All right, no, yes, auxins, yes, elongated cells. Yes. Yes, all right. Uh, what was the question? Oh, Rex. Yeah, 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 I love you. I love mulch. Yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you, Rex. Uh, mulch away. Mulch away. Debbie Flower, thanks again for uh, getting into the nuts and bolts of things. My pleasure. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Because there are so many demands on your time these days, well, I like to keep the Garden Basics podcast to under 30 minutes. But still, there's a lot more to tackle on all the garden subjects we bring up on the podcast. So for that and a lot more, we're starting up the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It'll be on Substack. It'll go into more details about what you just heard on the latest podcast. So yes, it will be a good supplement for the Garden Basics podcast, but there'll be a lot more garden-related material and, uh, you know, probably pictures of my dogs and cats as well. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It's on Substack. And best of all, it's free. There's a link in today's show notes, or just go to substack.com and do a search for The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. That's substack.com, The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. Did I tell you it's free? It's free. Every week, we like to talk with Warren Roberts out at the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. He is their superintendent emeritus, one of the wisest plant people I know. And every week, we get a plant that's probably putting on a show where you live if you happen to have it. And one widely available plant, uh, most nurseries, even the big box stores uh, carry this shrub, it's the gardenia. And one of the nice things, Warren, about the gardenia is it's an evergreen shrub. It's an evergreen shrub, and it has a long flowering period. When the weather warms up, the flowers start blooming and continue blooming until frost. Native to uh, Southeast Asia mainly, it has a wide range there. I'll just quickly name the places. Korea, Japan, South China, Taiwan, Vietnam, Myanmar, which used to be called Burma, Bangladesh, which uh, used to be called East Pakistan, and India. It is from a summer rain area, so in areas that have dry summers, it will need some water. It loves heat. In, in California, 
we we enjoy that because in the in the parts of the interior of California where I live, it gets hot, and the gardenias love it. They do best in really hot areas if they have shade in the afternoon. An east wall is a really good place to grow it in in uh, the interior of of California, um, but it produces beautifully fragrant flowers. There, there was some discussion as to what it was in the early years of its uh, discovery by European culture. Is it was it a jasmine? What was it? The name jasminoides means it's jasmine-like. In fact, the flowers are sometimes used to flavor tea, along with uh, some uh, some teas flavored by jasmine, others flavored by osmanthus blooms. Uh, so it has had a long uh, period of uh, long history of cultivation, uh, particularly in China. And there are different forms of it. Some are quite double. Uh, some are hardy to hardier to cold. Some are dwarf. Some bloom almost all year. The fragrance is so delightful to me. It's one of my favorite fragrances. And I knew that I had lost some of my sense of smell when I uh, was smelling a gardenia, and it uh, didn't smell quite right. But uh, I can still smell it. If it just takes a little stronger sniffing. <laughs> uh, why is it called gardenia? Well, the botanist that named it named it for a Scotsman, Alexander Garden, who lived many years in Charleston, South uh, South Carolina, uh, where he was a businessman, but he also loved plants, and he even sent samples of plants to Linnaeus, the uh, the uh, taxonomist in in Europe. He had to leave uh, South Carolina because he was a United Empire loyalist, oh. which means he was loyal to the king, and when the king lost uh, the colonies. He had to leave. His properties were confiscated, and he moved actually to England. But uh, this uh, <laughs> this beautiful flower is named for this fellow. It uh, has. There are many other species of gardenia. The genus is big. Let me see. About 200 species, including uh, South Africa. Now, for many years, it was thought that it was originally from South Africa. That's why it has the common name of Cape Jasmine. Cape referring to the Cape of Good Hope, but the um, the gardenia that is native there is not the same thing. The genus is native to uh, tropical and warm Old World areas, that is to say, not the Americas, uh, especially Asia, and then, of course, as I mentioned, South Africa. Yeah, we should point out, too, that there are many uh, named varietals of the gardenia. The, the jasminoides is probably the most popular species, but uh, they range in sizes from 6 to 12 inches up to 8 feet or taller. So be sure you know what you're getting. For instance, the uh, erraticans uh, only grow 6 to 12 inches tall, and there, then there are others, and probably the most popular is mystery, which can get 6 to 8 feet tall. And um, most of them don't produce uh, a fruit, but they produce lots of flowers. They're actually, you know, backtracking a little bit. I think there are actually some species native to the Hawaiian Islands. Mm. But the one that we're growing in, in the garden, that we grow in our gardens, is the species Gardenia jasminoides. And the common name we use in California is just plain Gardenia. Right. I, I'm looking here at the uh, Sunset National Garden book, and they uh, make a wry comment about uh, gardenia's demands. It says, like a temperamental artist, the gardenia has its own set of rules. Fuss over them, and the plant gives beauty. Ignore them, and they yellow and die. For thriving gardenias, provide warmth, regular water, and feeding, and good soil drainage. That sounds right. And uh, if you have al alkaline soil, you can acidify it with 
uh, uh, garden sulfur, which is inexpensive and very effective. Exactly. And uh, for those of you on the East Coast or down South, you may already have acidic soil, so that's not much of an issue. That's true. The gardenia, it's an excellent plant, widely available, and it is definitely a show for the nose. Warren Roberts, again, is the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. You ought to visit the Arboretum sometime when you're in Northern California. Drop by Davis, California and tour the campus of UC Davis because it is basically a really large, what, over 5,000 acres of of, of public garden. Uh, The uh, Arboretum itself, Warren, is what, about 100 acres or so, the Arboretum proper. But again, there are plantings throughout the, uh, the whole campus. That's right. The, the, the Arboretum, the University of California Davis Arboretum and Public Garden it basically includes the whole campus, although there is an, an area about 100 acres dedicated to the Arboretum itself. And it's gorgeous year round, so uh, pay it a visit. More information available at their website, arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Warren, thanks for the show for the nose, the gardenia. You're welcome. you have a small yard and you think you don't have the room for fruit trees, well, maybe you better think again, because Dave Wilson Nursery wants to show you how to grow great-tasting fruits, peaches, apples, pluots, and a lot more in small areas. You could even grow them in containers on patios as well. It's called Backyard Orchard Culture, and you can get step-by-step information via the fruit tube videos at DaveWilson.com. And that's where you're going to find the closest nursery to you that carries Dave Wilson's quality fruit trees. So start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. If you're new to the world of houseplants, or maybe you're wondering, what are some easy care houseplants that uh, don't cause too much trouble and they're fairly easy to take care of? We have the perfect guest for you to listen to today on Garden Basics. Interior landscaper and master gardener Lorianne Asmus, who owns the Sacramento-based company Emerald City Interior Landscape Services. Easy care houseplants, you hear this question every day. I imagine you can answer that quickly. Yes, I can. But I want to just segue into why a houseplant is easy, in my opinion. First of all, it's got to be resistant to insects and disease. And second of all, it has to be very forgiving, not only of light conditions, but also of watering anomalies. Easy care houseplants give us the list. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Number one, Chinese evergreen. Chinese evergreen. Aglaenema. Podestum. Modestum. Well, no, there's many different types, okay? And I wouldn't even I wouldn't even go there. I would just say Aglaonema. That's the genus. Aglaonema is the genus and it's A G L A O N E M A. Aglaonema. So, but Chinese evergreen, if you look it up, mm-hmm. they're not a tall houseplant, okay? They're kind of a kind of a fluffy three-foot houseplant or a a desk plant in a six-inch pot. They have many, many, many different variegations, dark green, silvery. Some have white stems. Some have pink in them. They're just really neat, and they don't take a lot of light. Okay, they do want some light. They would do well in an east window, but they can tolerate a north window. Um, We haven't really talked about light yet, but we will. No, we won't. Eventually. Eventually. You'll have to keep an eye on us. Because we might talk about it while you're asleep. No, anyway, Chinese evergreen is one of my favorites. It serves a lot of design purposes. Can get mealybugs, but it's pretty easy to control, and it's not real frequent. They they seem to be susceptible to fluoride problems, 
but they will go several years without showing damage. All right. So. Chinese evergreen, aglionema, number one. Okay. Number two. Okay. Uh, Dracaena. Of course, we got to do the Dracaenas, right? Dracaenas used to be one of my really favorite favorites. Now I'm kind of a little bit skeptical because, and I don't know if it has to do with mother stock or just the way they're being grown or what it is, but they just don't seem quite as robust as they used to. I love the Dracaena deramensis fragrance. The fragrance variety is really uh, one, it's an old style that you really can't find that much. Dracaena masangiana is a really good one. That's what they call it, mass cane. That's the one with the golden stripe. And that's probably one of your easiest care. The Lisa and the Hawaii girl and here in Sacramento, especially, they can get spider mites and sometimes, and they're very, very susceptible to fluoride. All right. And so for spider mite problems, I guess dry climates would be most susceptible. Yes. Like people in San Francisco, I've never had spider mites on that plant. And it's like, no, you haven't because you live in San Francisco. (laughs) But here in Sacramento, anything that could get spider mites is going to get them, right? Okay. So we've got two there. By the way, Dracaena isn't spelled the way it sounds. D-R-A-C-A-E. N-A. Yeah, there's that A in there that doesn't belong there. Yeah, okay, whatever. All right, Dracaena. Chinese evergreen, we have Dracaena, number three. Sansevieria. Sansevieria. (laughs) That's the snake plant or mother-in-law's tongue. And what's really cool about that is it used to be you got this one Sansevieria, right? And it was kind of tall, Xylanica, or there was another one. I I can't remember right off the top of my head what the other one was, but Xylanica was very popular. And it was kind of tall and narrow and whatever. It was was just a one one kind of one uh, shape is all you really got. Now... There's all different kinds that are popular, and there's some with narrower leaves and some with different various, sort of like what I was expressing about the Chinese evergreen, where there are like really lots of different kinds of sands of areas. They are pretty much bulletproof. They can get scale, they can get mealybugs, but it's very, very, very rare. And you can almost grow them in a closet, like, you know, three weeks in the dark, and they just don't seem to have too much trouble with that. And they don't require a lot of water, and they're just really easy care and interesting plants. Some people don't care for them because they are kind of pointy, and so from a feng shui perspective, they're not really great, but I like them a lot. Sansevieria, snake plant. That's number three. We have Chinese evergreen, Dracaena, and Sansevieria. Okay. Number four. Can I say the whole name? I hope so. Zamiacolca zamiafolia. That would be... You know what it is, right? Yes, both those words begin with the letter Z. Yes. So So it's it's ZZ Top. No, (laughs) ZZ Plant. ZZ Plant, okay. (laughs) Or Fat Boy. Oh, really? Yeah, they call it Fat Boy because it has that enlarged stem. Now, the thing that's cool about the ZZ plant is that it's actually a succulent. I did not know that. Yes, it's true. It's a succulent. I know we're going to talk about propagation sometime, but I'll tell you what's really neat is you can actually even take a leaf off the stem and it will propagate much like uh, African violet does because of the undifferentiated tissue. Use half a leaf or the whole leaf? Right. Either one. Yeah. It's kind of neat. It's a succulent. It doesn't need a lot of water. It will do better with a little bit more light than the Sansevieria requires. And, you know, I should say, when they say low light tolerant, they really are talking about low light tolerant, not low light loving. So, oh, yes, tolerant. Yes, yes. So most plants, they will tolerate the lower light conditions, but they would prefer to have a little bit more. And the more light that you can give them up to a point. Yes, up to gonna, a point. Uh, up to a point is going to be better. So the ZZ plant can tolerate 
very low light conditions and doesn't need a lot of water. Every two or three weeks is fine, or probably for you, once a month. Once a month, yes. All right, let's have a fifth house plant. That's easy care. What would that be? Pothos. P-O-T-H-O-S. Yes, and it's it's actually not like its real name. It's either Satin Pothos, which is my actual, my favorite, favorite, favorite one. But Isn't it's, that your stage name? Satin Pothos? Yes. Satiny leaf or silky leaf or something like that? No. Anyway, Satin Pothos. That's right. Performing now. No. Um. Anyway, no. <laughs> it's my favorite. Syndapsis Pictus. Syndapsis pictus, and that's S-C-I-N-D-A-P-S-I-S, syndapsis pictus. Okay, so... That's the botanical name for pothos? Yeah, for satin pothos. Now, the other pothos, the the marble queen and the golden and the jade and some other ones that they have now are mostly epipremnum, although... I have a feeling there's another name. They, they change those names often, but I know it as Epipremnum. Can we just call them Pothos? Epipremnum aureus. Uh, whatever. Would be golden Pothos, yes. Okay. So they're trailing plants. Everything else that I talked about is an upright plant. So this is a trailing plant, something that you can use up somewhere high. And they do very, very well. Now, sometimes Pothos can get thrips. Okay, sometimes they can get other diseases as well, but mostly they are disease and insect free. They do require a little bit more regular watering and you need to keep them pruned back a little bit if you want to keep them nice and full. The thing of growing them around your room like we did in college and you stack it on whatever, well, you wonder why it gets really bare back towards the pot. Because there's no beer can pyramid there. Oh, I forgot about that. That's right. <laughs> there's no there's no pyramid there. That's right. The pyramid. Yeah. No, that's not why. It's because they only have so much energy for that long stringer, you know what I mean? And so all of the new growth is looking great, but the stuff back by the pot is dying off because there's just not enough energy to grow at all. So if you keep these things pruned back to say the bottom of the pot, that would be a rule of thumb, maybe a little bit more than the bottom of the pot, say no more than six inches more than the bottom of the pot, you'll keep it nice and full. Five easy care houseplants. If you know somebody who says, oh, I can't grow houseplants, try those, the five. Again, they are Chinese evergreen, Dracaena, ZZ, Sansevieria, and Pothos. There you go. Five easy care houseplants. Florian Asmus, master gardener, Emerald City Interior Landscape Services owner, houseplant queen, and plant princess. I forgot. (laughs) Plant princess. Florian Asmus, uh, thanks for all that great information. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show. Plus, you can just listen to the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. There's other helpful links for even more information, including info about the new Garden Basics newsletter. And just like the podcast, it's free. Plus, you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. Leave an audio question without making a phone call via SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. It's easy. Give it a try. You can also use your phone to call or text us the question and pictures. 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. And you can email us, fred at farmerfred.com. 
And if you tell us where you're from, that's going to help us out greatly to accurately answer your garden questions. Because as I'm fond of saying, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to all our social media outlets, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And there's a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And if you would please, if you hear something you like on the podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, Castbox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.